Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Get that mask up over your nose. It's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and happy not to have a mask on because, yet again, we're on a Google Hangout. <laughs> but joining me on this hangout are my friends uh, Matt Kukum, Mitchell Crum. And guys, it's been just about a year since we went into lockdown. Uh, two weeks to flatten the curve. How, you, how are your two weeks going, guys? <laughs> I don't know. So I was uh, I was in class and I was I pulled out my plastic face shield, which I've been using in lieu of a mask um, while up in front of a classroom teaching. And I made this offhand comment about, man, I really want to burn, you know, my masks and my shield whenever, you know, all this is done, especially the shield. because I just hate it. But yeah. I wonder it might not actually burn. And then one of my students said, Dr. Moore made the same exact comment. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and like, we, I swear we didn't consult on this, but not even I, a I little bit humorous yeah, I, that we I made a similar observation. The, the masks. I mean, I don't love a mask. No one yeah. does, but I think I'll keep those around because yes. I'm really hoping that America adopts the East Asian uh, cultural norm of if you have a cold, you throw a mask on to help avoid yep. getting other people sick. But I, I am trying to figure out kind of a way of ceremonially destroying my plastic face shield oh, if and when um, the pandemic is officially declared over. By the way, do you think that's going to happen, guys? Will there be a moment at which sort of George W. Bush on the aircraft deck of the aircraft carrier saying mission accomplished? <laughs> does, does Joe Biden at some point just get to say the pandemic is over? Or is that the job of a World Health Organization bureaucrat? Who gets to say that? and Or does it get to be said? <laughs> Will it be said? I, I don't know. That's a good question. Like, could you imagine sometime in the fall, you know, there being some sort of like declaration? But, but I mean, it, it's one of those things. Like, I mean, a war, like a war, you can look at and say, like, well, this is a point in which, you know, there was a treaty that was assigned or, you know, a, a truce right. or whatever. But like, this is a pandemic. It kind of peers out. There's not a fine point in which it just ends. So politicians can get up and, you know, do a victory lap or public policy experts can declare something or other. I don't know. It's just, it's not going to feel the same. It was just about a year ago that the world health organization declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic. My guess would be if I know anything about the UN and its attendant bureaucracies is that there has to be some mechanism for undeclaring a pandemic, right? They don't just exist in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. So I'm having to think that at some point there's going to be a media story where somebody gets to say, it's no longer, even if it's a, still a disease, it's no right. longer a pandemic. Yeah. 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 Probably at some point. If I, if I were Biden, I think I would probably, and if I were in the white house, I think I would set like a threshold for vaccinations um, and say, once you've hit a certain point, you know, a certain percentage, then that constitutes something approaching herd immunity and then you're done. Um, this, this gets to the question we were talking about off air before we started recording, which is, and I, I'll repeat the question that Matt asked us. Um, what's the date you think at which, um, let's say, the, um, with, the, with, with a few minor exceptions, every American who wants to get a vaccine can get one? 
what date do we, when, when do we hit that moment? Um, I mean, if I'm speculating, I, I imagine that date happens sometime in the summer. Um, I think it'll happen probably, I mean, right now, of course, there's been sort of a slow rollout, but I, I imagine at some point, sort of a dam's going to break here and, um, you know, all the roadblocks that seem to have appeared will suddenly disappear and things will be there. I know a number of folks in policy circles have also kind of worried, though, that things are going to open up and then demand will fall off. Um, but but I would I would imagine here here pretty soon. Um, I think yeah. Yeah, yeah. My this is just mostly unfounded speculation. Although I've been following some of this, um, I would say the the vast majority of Americans who want a vaccination who are older than was it sixteen or eighteen at least sixteen should be, sixteen should be able to get one by July first. There will be a chunk of Americans who don't want one at all for various reasons. There will be yep. some Americans who want one, but for various reasons haven't been able to get one, maybe because of availability or distribution issues in their particular area. But vast majority of American adults who want one, my guess, will be able to get one by July 1st. Um, they may which not. Would, you know, yeah, maybe, which, maybe which at least the first Joe, so. Which would fit with Joe Biden's promise of having fairly normal 4th of July barbecues. Right. right. I... This, I'm in a rare position here. I am more skeptical than both of you. Um, here's, this here's is why. Weird. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Here, here's why I think that. Um, we're already, um, I think we're going to run into an, an, an issue where as the vaccination rate goes up, mostly fueled by people who desperately want the vaccine. And I'll put myself in that category. I can't wait to get the Fauci ouchie. Um, <laughs> and when that, I'm, 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 when that happens, we're going to start to see a burgeoning level of herd immunity. We're already seeing really dropping fatality rates, which is interesting because even right now in Minnesota, at least in Michigan and other places in the Midwest, we're seeing climbing case rates. So more people are getting sick and even fewer people are dying. My sense is that as, as the vaccination spreads, especially amongst vulnerable populations first, we're going to see an expansion of the population of people who are skeptical about getting the vaccine. And I'm not sure that we're going to get all the way up to 70, 75, 80% necessary to achieve really meaningful herd immunity. And my fear is that the United States could kind of limp along in this uh, um, this in-between space where let's say half the population or a little bit more than half the population is vaccinated, but not enough to really um, quench uh, COVID-19. And there'll be this sort of this ongoing low-level case rate amongst people who are, who are deciding not to get vaccinated because they don't have the time, the ability to get off work, the ability to make the appointment, or they just don't care that much. Yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, it's, I mean, I think that's, I think, I think that's a possibility. Um, I do think um, my sense though, I mean, and, and this is, um, I can't remember where I saw this, but it was, I can't, and so I can't remember exactly who, which, which polling agency was out there, but it looks like there's a little bit of indication that from what I saw, from what I think, I, from what I remember, that vaccine skepticism is actually declining somewhat here. That's true. And Good point. so I think, you know, there's a possibility that maybe actually by the time we get to July, you know, um, especially if we continue to get sort of, you know, full full court press from everybody saying this is, um, you know, this is a good thing to do. It really doesn't, you know, there's no serious dangers other than, you know, the normal exceptionally rare 
reactions that accompany any vaccine. Um, and, you know, if you continue to get that, then maybe people will go out and, and do it. I mean, goodness knows we've been through so much over this year. I think there's, there's, a, there's a pretty strong argument to be made to anybody to say, look, don't you want this to be over? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Go, go and get this one small thing, right? It's, 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 uh, <laughs> this one weird trick. <laughs> right. This one weird trick will just end all of the pain of 2020. Like, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, Here's why I'm pessimistic. And I'm going to call this out directly. Um, one of my former students, um, I can't imagine she's listening, but if you are, hey, Molly, how's it going? Um, is one of my, is Facebook, is my Facebook friend. She's also Facebook friends for reasons I'm not going to fully explain um, with uh, Senator John Thune. Uh, Senator John Thune is a very conservative Republican representing South Dakota. Um, he's beloved. I don't know beloved. Maybe it's too far, but he's very well liked and respected on the evangelical right. Um, and has been endorsed by Focus on the Family and other or, um, other organizations like that. Um, he was in a picture with a South Dakota, a Bismarck area um uh, no, not not Bismarck. Sorry, but a, a, a South Dakota hospital uh, system, and he was posing with several officials from the hospital, and they were all masked. Just that—that that was the nature of the picture. The comments on the picture were astounding. Just. I, I scrolled through page after page after page of comments where basically people were saying this vaccine doesn't actually vaccinate. It's a fake. It doesn't work. Or alternatively, the narrative was it puts harmful things in your body. Or alternatively, the narrative was if the vaccine is so great, why are you wearing a mask? Um, take that mask off. And amazingly, again, the, the, the comments were uh, 25 to one, you know, very conservative voices basically saying he wasn't conservative enough for them calling him Mitch McConnell's puppet, which means Mitch McConnell is not conservative enough for this, for the people who respond to this Facebook post. Now, I don't think these were like Russian trolls, but this is telling us that there's a population of people in the United States. And, and by the way, I should mention plenty of people saying I'm never getting this vaccine. You couldn't make me get this vaccine. I'll kill you before you can give me this vaccine. Right. Um, yep. Or I'll die before you give me this vaccine. And, I think that's going to that's going to retard our ability to get up to herd immunity. Yeah. Especially in Well, okay, a few things. Um so some there's already signs that some of that is dissipating. Not by a lot, but some. Um um schools are going to require this for kids once it's authorized. Um uh, that includes, you know, kids going to, you know, certainly public schools, possibly private schools, schools as well, including in conservatives areas. So if your kid is required to get it, um, you know, there's, a, that is, and it turns out fine for them, increases likelihood that you'll get it as well. Businesses are going to require employees to get this as well. So there's that. Um, and I think, you know, that, you know, that will sort of increase, I think, the acceptability of the vaccine in mm -hmm. some circles. There will always be some um, who are going to be opposed, right? Um, and, and, you know, there's perhaps not a lot that can be done on that. Um, I, I know this is completely short circuiting, um, the, the agenda that I, <laughs> that I sent around, but since we're on it, um, you know, we, one of the things that we're going to talk about, um, when we were 
planning this podcast is sort of the cultural sort of dimension of the pandemic um, and how sort of the pandemic, um, you know, like everything else in American society, seems to be sort of shaped by the um, the so-called culture wars that we're in. Um, and there's been a lot of interesting sort of research that's been done by political scientists and, you know, pollsters, sociologists on sort of the, the cultural dimensions of the pandemic um, and the acceptability of the vaccine amongst various groups. So there's been some interesting work done by um, um, by uh, Pew Research, um, also by uh, YouGov, which is a polling outfit, um, on which groups are most likely to um, accept or reject getting vaccinated. And it's interesting that white evangelicals um, are basically the most significant um, group um, in the United States that is rejecting wanting to get the vaccine. Um, so more than any other sort of, uh, you know, group uh, crossing sort of, um, you know, race, ethnicity, religion, um, you know, politics, etc. Um, I and that information that data came out um, a f- about a month ago. Um, more more recently, or around this time frame, there is some interesting work. Um, there is a they, there's a piece in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, um, in which some sociologists um, from a couple of universities did some some interesting research, and they found that, um, and they kind of sort of dug a little bit more deeply into some of the data. Um, and it turns out that you can't use um, religiosity, for example, or even um, sort of Protestant religiosity to predict the likelihood that um, a person will or won't get a vaccine. And what they found mm-hmm. is that um, the the best sort of um, predictor um, of who's going to get, who's going to reject a vaccine, right? Um, getting a vaccine is actually Christian nationalism. Um, mm-hmm. And they actually actually, you know, have this metric for, you know, basically ranking people at in the extent to which they subscribe to Christian nationalism. And basically the, the stronger a Christian nationalist you are, right. Thinking that America is, um, is, you know, is a, is a fundamentally Christian nation. There's a lot of things bound up with that. Basically, um, the more a Christian nationalist you are, the greater the likelihood it is that you will, you are opposed to personally getting the vaccine. Um, so, there's definitely a political dimension to, to and sort of a religious yeah. dimension to all of this. And we, sh- we should probably say too, because I, 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 I remember looking at that, uh, that study as well. And I think one of the things just, just to note that there is a big difference between somebody who is, and even in this study, right, between someone who is both a nationalist and also somebody who is a strong Christian. Yep. Um, yep absolutely. You know, that, that Christian nationalist carries a lot of freight. And I think in particular, you know, kind of the key differentiator is that, is that essentially America has a special place in God's plan. Like right. it's this idea that there is something particularly Christian and that that Christianness, um, you know, dis- makes America in some sense equivalent with, you know, biblical Israel. So you think about like, you know, Israel has a particular place in the Bible. Israel has a particular role in God's plan. And if you are somebody who thinks America has that same status, um, you know, being this particular people that's called apart by God for a particular purpose in the world, then that situates you in this Christian nationalist type group. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's also some very, I mean, there's some important, so Christian nationalism is also a proxy to other very closely related outlooks and 
and um, and attitudes. Um, and one of the things that they found too is that I mean, if you're a Christian nationalist, there are some other things that sort of accompany that, right? So if you're yeah. a Christian nationalist, you're more likely to distrust the news media, to distrust to distrust um, you know um, scientific you know experts mm-hmm. who we'll talk about later in the podcast screwed some things up to be sure. But there's a distrust for the media, distrust for um, for you know scientific experts, um, people who claim to have scientific expertise, and that's um, hallmarks of populism. Well, right, right, because Christian National doesn't have a strong populist sort of thread you know, current going through it. Um, and so these things as well, you know, are, are obviously going to, you know, if the media is saying, go get go get vaccinated, if scientific experts are saying, go get vaccinated, and you distrust, you know, the people who are saying that, well, then, of course, um, um, you're going to distrust sort of the efficacy of the vaccine. Um, and the people have other reasons as well. But, um, yeah, just to add to what Mitch was saying about the study. So I think there's there's a set of issues that we want to just talk through with the remainder of our time today. And Matt, you helpfully identified these as sort of public policy questions, politics questions, and culture questions. And we've mostly launched into this conversation of culture, but let me back us up here a little bit. And let's let's look first. This is in, in, I, I, now that now that we're a good uh, twenty minutes in this conversation. <laughs> let me reveal the theme of this podcast, which is our one year reflections on the pandemic, uh, which is which which should be pretty obvious. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's start um, with public policy, and let's start with the biggest, most impactful public policy of from the federal from the federal level, and that is the American Rescue Plan. Um, H.R. 1319. Uh, this was entered into law on March 11th. Uh, it's probably known for most, for, to most Americans as the piece of legislation that put an additional $1,400 per person in their household into their bank accounts. But guys, what what's the impact of this bill overall? I was going to uh, sort of take issue with the framing of like, well, maybe you didn't mean it this way, but if we're looking at um, um, federal government policy that has had the most impact upon sort of our ability to handle the pandemic, it's definitely not this piece of legislation, which no, the majority no, of it, the majority of spending, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say the majority of the spending in this legislation has very little to do. I mean, there is a chunk for um, dealing with directly with economic fallout and people who are hurting, right? And of course, for de- vaccine distribution, all that's important. A lot of the rest of the bill is not. I'd say the most Im- the most impactful and positive public policy from the federal government has it has been the public private partnerships that have helped get these vaccines developed and rolled out um, and distributed right. very quickly. Um, and that I was mean, launched underneath the Trump administration. And it was, uh, I mean, probably and, known as Operation Light or Operation Warp Speed. Yeah, yeah, I mean that if there has been one sort of real public policy success at the federal level, that's been it, right? Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm not. I wasn't saying by success. I was I, I, I know. in terms of cost. Yeah, um, this that, is that, the most expensive piece of, of legislation. Yeah. So it, let me it, run. The, let me run this down real quick. So um, I'm drawing this information from the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, which is sort of a fiscally conservative, uh, sort of fiscal hawk kind of uh, kind of organization, and this is their response to what's in the American Rescue Plan. Um, of that 1.9 trillion number, you, you hear a lot about four billion, four hundred billion dollars, a little bit over the four hundred billion dollars, turns into fourteen hundred dollar payments to taxpayers um, underneath a certain level of income. Um, double that if you're married, and then add some for 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 qualifying children as well. 
that's the biggest single chunk but there's as as matt indicated there's lots of other things so 3.362 billion dollars goes to states local governments and tribal governments and a lot of that is um, covering expenses related to the pandemic but also covering uh, shortfalls in revenue at the state level so this is really is the federal government bailing out state coffers uh, in a lot of ways um, and there's been a lot of ire over that about who gets that money and how much and and, and for what reasons um, another 200 billion dollars goes to the expansion of unemployment benefits uh, basically um, adding an additional amount on top of unemployment insurance uh, through September of this year. Another $176 billion uh, expands the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, and the employee retention credit. And this is actually, in, in some ways, a, a short-term foray into universal basic income right? Yep. This mm -hmm. is giving money to people um, who have kids. And rather than waiting for to claim this money on their tax returns, they can actually get a check midway through the year, essentially from the government um, to provide sort of a base level of income, regardless of employment status. Um, so this is, I mean, this is an interesting, now, the, now proponents of this have argued this is going to lift a significant proportion of American children out, uh, who are below the poverty level out of poverty. Um, but this is a real experiment in social engineering. Um, another $174 billion goes to public health and related spending. This basically has a lot to do with, uh, testing costs of testing, contact tracing, and, and actually rolling out the vaccine itself. Another $170 billion goes to education, both K through 12 schools and colleges and universities who've all taken a hit in terms of funding and, uh, because of the loss of students or the loss of, you know, um, of taxpayer dollars. And so this is, basically a bailout for, for schools at all levels. And then lastly, um, another $300 billion uh, goes to other kinds of programs. And so this is where you kind of fill the car, all, all different kinds of things here. This includes things like food aid, small business support, emergency rental assistance, and, and, and additional relief for uh, municipalities dealing with homeless populations. But there's lots else packed in that $300 billion as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, there are progressives like progressive groups like Center for American Progress and others who've said this is the most important progressive legislation since LBJ. Um, this is and I mean, and a lot of them have explicitly said this is the beginning, like the benefits that we are rolling out here um, are we want to make permanent. Right. Yeah. Um, this is the first step in their view of a permanent and very large expansion of the welfare state. You can like it or love it, right? Critique it or love it. Um, but you know, the, the, those are the facts on the ground. Um, yeah. it's, it's a very significant package in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's an, it's, it's an enormous public spending project and it's dwarfed only by what the Biden administration is preparing to move on to now, which is essentially a very, very large infrastructure spending program, which could, um, which, which would at least be 150% bigger than this in the initial offer. But um, it's not, it's an open question to me whether that actually gets traction on the ground. This has actually been passed, but it got passed by a very close margin. Mitch, are you surprised that um, Biden couldn't get any uh, Republicans on board for the American Rescue Plan? Uh, no, not really. Um, I mean, it's, it's not at all surprising given uh, partisanship right now. You know, one of the things that... Uh, um, I was actually just talking with with students about um, in reading uh, 
you know, Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, is, you know, just thinking about the incentives for people who are um, in, in, you know, who are, who are in Congress. I mean, basically, when you have two highly competitive parties, you know, as Klein um, and other political scientists have, have discussed, right, your incentive is basically to not cooperate because you are essentially thinking we're going to be in charge in two years or four years or, you know, pretty soon. And so why would I cooperate with people who are in power right now? when I may be in the driver's seat, you know, in a very short time in the future. So it's not really surprising at all. I mean, the, the entire name of the game when you've got two competitive parties is you want to take credit for things that you think you can take credit for and to try to stop your opponents from being able to take credit for things that they want to take credit for. So, um, so yeah, it's not really all that surprising. Now, what I think is probably more noteworthy, though, um, is that even though Republicans um, all all decided to vote against this, there were a number of extremely positive reviews of various elements of this from different Republicans. And I think that's probably more significant and probably also speaks to the possible staying power of some of these policies. Um, you know, if you have a number of Republicans who are willing to get behind the child tax credit and things like mm. that, uh, or, or the However, however they frame it, you know, it's no longer tax credit, I guess it's now the, <laughs> the, the, the payments, right? The, the, the payments for, for children, um, it becomes much less likely that that gets overturned or that you even face substantial opposition to its expansion down the pipe. I mean, if this is something that, you know, somebody like Mitt Romney and maybe even some of the other, uh, you know, some other senators are, are discussing, um, you know, it seems like it seems like something that might actually actually carry on. Um, and in that way, you know, progressive groups can certainly talk about it. And I think um, Republicans, if they're, I don't know, if they if they if they want to try to claim credit for this, I mean, this is certainly a way that they could turn this into a pro-family bill. I mean, if you want to talk about something that, you know, enhances families, makes it easier for families to get by, makes it easier for people to have families, have kids, you know, Republicans oftentimes talk a game about having family values. Well, you know, maybe family values means that you actually encourage families to be able to 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 exist <laughs> and so um you know so i think there's an easy way for republicans to reframe that as well um if they wanted to try to capture some of the credit for it down the pipe yeah and i think they'd be smart too although it is interesting to note i mean you're totally right you know there's an incentive for the minority party to basically um stick to throwing rocks right um at yeah. the majority in the hopes to set yourself up for regaining the majority at some point but it is worth noting you know there was about 10 republicans that offered um who made a very serious sort of counter offer of a of a smaller COVID relief package yeah you know floated it to biden and biden and the Senate Democrats basically gave them the middle finger um, over it um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day um, and really, really soured relations with them. So now, of course, there are plenty of Republicans who who basically were opposed to anything. Right. And didn't want to work with Democrats. Um, but, you know, so there's incentives on both sides, too. You know, in this case, you know, you saw there was some incentive amongst Democrats not to work for the Republicans because they, they were a lot of them were under pressure from their um, hardcore progressive base, just as, you know, some Republicans have a lot of pressure from their base not to work with the other side and to push and to push the legislative priorities now that, you know, the Democrats do have a majority, even though it'd be very slim. Right. Um, and that's why you're seeing enormous pressure on even moderate Democrats, even now with regards to other policies um, to push them through um, because because Democrats have a majority and they see this as an opportunity. Um, and so that means that Democrats have under the, you know under that pressure have less incentive to to make concessions uh, to give concessions to the other side yeah yeah
And, and I think it goes back to the same, as Matt was saying, it goes back to those same incentives. I mean, if, if you're in the driver's seat, your incentive is to maximally claim credit. And so why would you bargain with the folks on the other side and allow them to claim any of the credit when you want it for yourself? So I think, you know, yep. it, it works in, in both those ways, which is, you know, I know we've already talked about dysfunction before, so I don't want to drag us down that path, but yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, we're going to get there. Yay, dysfunction. <laughs> so Mitch, let me ask you this. Uh, I've already I identified uh, the American Rescue Plan as the most expensive response to the pandemic um, in terms of federal spending. Um, Matt has identified Operation Warp Speed as the most successful federal response to the pandemic. What would you highlight as other important um, public, public policy responses in this last year in addressing this pandemic? Well, I think what you've both noted is that, you know, what's what's been curious, and of course, you know, I don't know that we want to get into, you know, relitigating everything that the Trump administration did. But I mean, basically, the, the Trump administration's reaction to the pandemic, I don't think this is controversial to say this, it was to essentially was to not react, was to leave it to the states. Um, you know, the Trump administration's overarching policy approach was that it is up to individual states to figure out how they want to mitigate the pandemic. Um, and, you know, that base, you know, while there were other things going on, you know, there were the various, um, you know, there was there, there were the various stimulus bills that, that, that came out. And mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's also Warp Project Warp Speed and all of those things. But Trump really made it very clear that he wanted the states to be the ones who took the lead on, on everything else. And so I think, you know, from there, you get into an absolute patchwork across the nation. I mean, you have, um, you know, probably most famously, of course, you have the, the stay at home orders. And I think those are probably the other thing to really focus on. I mean, is which states gave stay at home orders? What did those exactly look like? Um, how strictly were they enforced? Um, you know, all of those sorts of questions. But those were that was certainly the largest um, you know, pr probably the policy that people remember the most, even, I mean, because that was what impacted their, their lives the most, you know, and then of course impacted businesses the most. Yeah. Um, so, but, but I think it's important to note that that was, that was at the state level. Um, you know, that was various states deciding this is what, um, we're going to do or not do. Um, and I think, you know, I think the science is, is still is, is pretty clear, like sort of in the aggregate. I think it's a little bit unclear how successful various states were in these policies. Um, you know, it seems pretty clear that stay at home orders are effective. Um, they do mitigate um, spread and things like that. Um, it's just a question of, you know, how long do they need to last and what happens if there's already significant spread and things like that. You know, all of those things sort of like undercut. Um, some a number of states' efforts and made it so that you know they were less effective than they probably could have been um, in various places. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of like New York. You know, New York eventually has a stay-at-home order, but then has an absolutely massive surge of uh, you know of of, of patients and 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 just an enormous death rate. But that's you know partially because it had already spread a lot, and so you have a lot of um, issues there. Um, you know, one of the other things I guess I just want to note, you know, is while there were stay-at-home orders in various states, and some states had more strict orders than others, um, even the strictest states, I think, here in the United States are nothing compared to a number of examples abroad. Um, yep. You know, if you think about some of the orders in Europe, if you look at places like Australia, I was listening to an interview the other day um, with, uh, with actually a pastor from Australia. And he was talking about how, you know, not only are they not allowed to gather and congregate, they 
and maybe this has been lifted since then, but for a long time, they weren't even allowed to travel more than three miles from their homes. Um, so basically, you know, the stay-at-home orders were not only do you have to stay at home, not only are you not allowed to congregate in crowds, you aren't allowed to travel. And there was never any kind of order at that level here in the United States. There was always, um, you know, there were some states that tried to sort of prevent you from crossing state borders sometimes or things like that. But there was never anything approaching like, you know, you can't leave your town or something like that. You know, those kinds of orders um, were never in place here in the United States. The United States, in some ways, um, you know, while those are the stay-at-home orders and those kinds of policies are probably what people remember and certainly had a large impact, um, you know, we did, we never implemented those policies at the full level um, that many other nations did. Let me ask the two of you a classic states' rights kind of question, right? Uh, this is a this is a typical debate amongst American conservatives and American progressives. Um, who should be controlling state policy? And, and the typical conservative response is people closer to the population should be doing that. So the federal government shouldn't take power from the states and the states shouldn't take power from localities um, as much as possible. Um, in this case, with something like a pandemic, we're, should we be evaluating essentially 50 different public policy responses state by state, or should we say there was a role for the federal government to play here and they didn't fulfill their role the way they should have. I mean, I think there's uh, obviously, I mean, that, I mean, that gets into a lot of sticky questions. I think, you know, in terms, I, I think, I, I mean, I guess, I guess I don't think it's exclusive for one thing. I mean, I think okay. there's a role of, of saying that we can do both, right. We can look at state by state and say, which states did better than others. Um, you know, in terms, and, and obviously there's a number of criteria, although, you know, the criteria get tricky because especially early on in the pandemic, even having tests and knowing exactly what the spread was, was kind of a matter of, you know, that was left mm -hmm. up to the states and various states funded testing. and Or in the case of New York, up to Cuomo's whims. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, but there, but there are ways to evaluate and to look at, you know, how do different states do? Um, and I think that's certainly one question to have and certainly a way to to evaluate, you know, perhaps for future policy, um, you know, to think about which, what did different states do well or not do well. Um, but then there's also, you know, I think, I think it is, you know, one of the, probably the biggest critique of the United States in general that um, folks have brought forward is that, you know, there was a very limited federal response um, in terms of these actual orders and that some of these things are only effective if they're implemented nationwide, you know, um, you know, if you allow, you know, if, if you're going to have a stay at home order, um, it's most effective if everybody is staying home in more or less the same way. And you don't have some people who are continuing to spread the virus, um, you know, a few miles away in another state um, while you're trying to stay at home. And so I think that's, um, you know, one of the things to to note. Right. I mean, I mean, the whole point of some of these policies is to try to stamp them out. Uh, you know, is to try to stamp out spread. But if you still have pockets of spread, then 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 it kind of defeats the purpose eventually. Um, so that's you know, I, I do think there's there, there's a question of you know how effective was the federal government response as well um, on these things. Again, particularly particularly given, and I guess I'll say too. I mean, particularly given that um, you know you, you there were a number of mixed messages that came down. I mean, you had different people at the federal level saying different things, and so I think you know that's another way you could evaluate some states. I mean, some states were very good at having consistent messaging saying, this is what we're doing. This is what you should be doing. Even if they weren't mandating that you do it, 
at least they had consistent messages that said things like, you should still be wearing a mask, even though we're not telling you you have to, you know, um, and things like that, whereas the federal government went back and forth. I mean, you have, you know, I mean, just thinking of President Trump at one point, he says, yeah, sure, here's a mask. And then at other points, he's like, but I refuse to wear it on camera, you know, and things like that. So, you know, you have these. Well, even things, going back so. to the early part of the of the early part of the pandemic where there was an open question from federal health officials about whether masks should be worn or not. Mm -hmm. And the early evidence was don't wear masks, mostly because masks needed to be rerouted to uh, medical workers. and They didn't want people hoarding masks. And then several months after that, it was, oh, no, now we need to be wearing masks. And more than that, maybe we need to mandate wearing masks. And that whiplash, I think, was not well explained mm -hmm. to, uh, to the American population. And it made us look feckless. It is a problem. Right. Well, and part of this, yeah, is, is public public health experts were trying to at at both you know all levels were trying to you know psychoanalyze American public, right? So like, well, if we tell them wear masks, they'll hoard masks, but then if they start wearing masks, then they might go do reckless things because they feel safe, and so we give a false sense of trying to outthink Americans. And and really, you know, it, uh, some people have pointed out like this sort of you know this sort of kind of paternalistic sort of approach that a lot of sort of public health experts have taken has kind of backfired in the end. Um, there was a great piece uh, in The Atlantic um, by a professor out of a university in North Carolina, which sort of outlines, you know, uh, the, the five pandemic mistakes that we keep repeating. Um, basically, you know, the failures of not just, you know, your, your elected politicians, you know, governors, mayors, um, president, right? But more of just the failures in sort of public health experts in communicating effectively helping people understand how to balance risks effectively um, and and giving people up-to-date information that they can use to basically make their own decisions um, instead of providing information and guidance, basically um, issuing orders. And then whenever health experts, you know, discover something, look at something else in the data, right, and then discover like, oh, this is a bad policy, they flip to a completely different policy. And people, you know, again, like you, you mentioned, they don't understand, then they start distrusting the public health experts. So instead of taking a more paternalistic approach, which is what a lot of them did. You know, they should just like, here's the information, here's the guidance that we're giving based off the information, here's what we think you should do, right? And I think, you know, if that had been the approach at all levels, um, we would be in a better situation, right? But but that's not the approach, the approach yeah. that was taken. Um, but back to the federalism point, I mean, I think, you know, federal policies are great when they work. <laughs> until they don't work right i mean so this is this is the problem with federalism like we like federalism when the federal government's policy works well right when the federal government is able to to you know implement policy competently um until it doesn't right um and then and then we wish that the states would would have more control and vice versa like well gee like a whole bunch of states screwed it up if only the federal government had the power um and and so you so that's kind of the that that's why we get in these sort of um, just endless debates about federalism, um, because you know there are times when both the federal government and state governments are going to act incompetently, right? Um, and I think what you have to do is you have to look at okay, which which entities are going to be most suited to certain sorts of tasks, right? Um, so you know a national lockdown, for example. Um, it's going to be really hard for the federal government to implement that because that has to be implemented sort of on the ground. Right. Um, it's, and it's there's going to be unconstitutional. <laughs> well, but yeah, but even, even if a constitution allowed that, so the setting that aside, um, okay. even if just sort of setting aside the, the legality, right. Um, the question is like, you know, is a federal government going to be 
best equipped to make a decision over whether or not a particular area should be locked down or not, right? Because different states, you know, are going to, regions are going to experience, you know, spikes at different points based off of the weather, right? So, and we saw this last summer, like, you know, when, you know, the, the levels were low in the American South because everyone was outdoors, but then as the summer heated up, all the people in the American South went indoors and then that caused a spike, right? Um, and so, you know, so rather than, because you would have, you know, if the federal government was operating, you'd have a national lockdown for a whole year across the, you know, across, you know, all 50 states. You're better off, you know, letting, you know, states potentially, um, you know, make these decisions on their own. Does that mean that, you know, sometimes states are going to screw it up? Yeah, for sure. But you have to look to, you know, what are the different, what are the different decision-making entities? Where What are they best situated to do, right? So the federal government, you know, is in these sorts of situations is probably best situated to provide good information, provide good data, provide consistent messaging, right? And they failed in some ways on that. Um, you know, the states have their own failures. Um, I don't think you can, I, I don't know, I could, I could go on about this. I don't think you can sort of look, I don't think either side can look at this and and say, you know, see, we need to give states more power or see, we need to give the federal government more power. It's just not that simple. And, and oh, the other thing I'll say too is this, because the federal government wasn't providing sort of, sort of, guidelines that well i mean they were providing guidelines right and mitch made a point that you know states um you know you'd have you know one state that was you know implementing one one policy and a state just next door would be implementing a very different policy but it actually turns out a lot of states actually coordinated regionally right on pandemic response um so governors would be calling each other different health departments would be working together so that you know clusters of states in in regions that made sense right were issuing you know similar sorts of policies now this wasn't yep. This wasn't done uniformly, but it was very interesting to see state level coordination without any sort of national mandating um, or, or intervention to make that happen. States voluntarily did that. Do you guys perceive we've already talked about the potential of this sort of social engineering experiment with uh, with income for children beyond that? Do you after the pandemic dies down as a as a focus for public spending, do you think there'll be other long-term impacts of the, of the pandemic on our public policy uh, arena? Um, I mean, I think, absolutely. I think, I think, I think absolutely. I think it's hard to predict exactly what all those will be, but I mean, I think for one thing, um, I mean, one, one area that I, that I, I, I do think will be impacted by this. I mean, is, is, is just, uh, Americans will probably have a much higher place for public health. I mean, in terms of policy, hmm. um, I do think, you know, it's one of those things that people talk about how there'll be a crisis, you know, some kind of health crisis. And then we spend a lot of money and we set up programs or whatever, you know, we try to set all this stuff up and then it kind of dies down. I'm not sure that's going to be the case this time. Um, you know, in previous public health crises, um, you know, the crises are, are usually, we're talking about crises in terms of months. Um, you know, this is a crisis that has, you know, been going on now for over a year. And that seems like something that may actually move Americans to think more seriously about this in the future. I think it's much easier at this point, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, you know, maybe the next decade or so to say, hey, we need this policy because or we need this program because this is going to prevent, you know, the next 2020. Um, and I think it's much easier to sell that kind of policy now than it would have been ever before. Um, so I think that's certainly one area. I think also, and part of this is going to hinge on what 
Biden and the Democrats do over the next um, couple years. But it seems like there is an open door for a much stronger um, series of federal policies. You know, for the last um, couple of decades, you know, there's been a big push to have um, in some ways almost almost a shrinking role for the federal government. Um in, in a lot of areas. Now, whether that's always been successful or not, it's another question, but there's been at least the, the, the stated desire to see that. And I'm not sure that's going to be the case um, uh, for a lot of folks in the near, at least in the near future. I think there's a num- you know, there seems to be a much stronger um, appetite, even amongst people who are on the right, um, to see a stronger um, federal government and stronger federal responses to some of, um, you know, some of these things. So I wonder if that's going to be um, more of a feature um, of, of, of our politics going forward is a little bit more of a, of a national focus. Stronger, stronger um, federal response to specifically pandemic related public health I think, policy I think every, issues or broader than that? I, I mean, broader than that. And I think I think that comes <laughs> out, you know, I think I think there's actually been an opening um, again, for better or worse. I mean, if you're somebody out there who feels like, you know, local is better and all those sorts of things. I mean, this is bad news, obviously, but I, but it does seem like, um, you know, there, there does seem to be more of an appetite in a lot of ways. I mean, just thinking about, you know, the, the, the child, uh, you know, the, 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 the child, um, I can't remember the word, I'm searching for the words because it's not tax income tax credit. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, the, <laughs> so yeah, so that is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So the, so the child tax credits, you know, um, and if you're thinking about infrastructure, you know, even if you think about the Trump era, you know, one of the things that was um, a hallmark of, of Donald Trump when he was running the first time was talking about infrastructure. And even though he didn't spend that much time on it during his presidency, I think the Republican Party is perhaps more open to these kinds of large scale um, projects. Um, and I think, you know, Biden's move right to infrastructure next is an indication of that. I think he senses that there's an opening in the American public for these kinds of, of moves. And, you know, just like with so many things, infrastructure can be done at the state level or it can be done at the federal level. And, um, you know, the fact that there seems to be this appetite for this at the federal level, um, especially now that we're post-pandemic, you know, I think that, that, that that's really open there. And I think, I guess I'll say one other thing I think that makes this broader too is, I think most of the conversation in the past about limiting federal action has been on the premise that, well, people get concerned about federal spending and spending too much money. And I think given the stimulus bills that were passed both under President Trump and now under President Biden, it doesn't feel like there's too much serious concern over federal spending. Um, You know, there may still be people who talk that as sort of a game, you know, as sort of like, you know, a point of rhetoric. Um, But in point of practice of actual policy, um, the last year has kind of proven that there's a strong appetite for spending a lot of money. And um, that opens the door for a whole lot more federal action, whether you are conservative or um, liberal. And so that seems to me to indicate, you know, we're in for Again, no matter who's in charge, Republicans or Democrats, a much stronger and more expansive federal programs and policies in the next, you know, again, if I'm just speculating, I mean, you know, over at least the next decade. Yeah, that's good. I I agree. I just think that we were we were well down this path well before the pandemic started. Um, If the pandemic might have accelerated it in a certain sense, and it certainly provided an opportunity for Democrats uh, to basically seize on the crisis. Right. And use it um, to frame um, basically a a bill that consists of basically their hefty chunk of their wish list. Right. So on on sort of um, the expansion of the welfare state. So but, you know, but like 
you know, like a lot of the trends I think you pointed out, Mick, you know, that that existed before the pandemic. Right. And I think some of this has to do with I mean, there's always been a strong desire on the left to spend large amounts of money for an expansive you know, federal role. Um, so that's nothing new. Right. The pandemic just provided um, basically. A, a means for them to do that. Um, what's more interesting, I think, is what sort of movements that we've seen on the right, um, as the right has basically become less conservative and more populist, right? We've seen this with Trump. Um, there's been, you know, a greater um, a greater appetite um, for, for you know, big government, right? Um, and, and a lot of federal spending um, and a big federal presence in certain ways. Um, you know, there's some disagreements on other policy issues, but it is interesting to see, um, see that this is the direction the American public is going. I mean, you no longer hear any of those Tea Party types. Remember the Tea Party, you know, and about fiscal conservatism and, and Paul Ryan and all those guys? Like, Well, that's gone. Um, and it's Paul, not coming Paul back Ryan, anytime soon. Paul Ryan got chewed up and spit out of the Congress. Um, really? Which I is mean, too bad. Which is too bad. But. Um, yeah, I, because but, he, he was actually a, a fairly serious um, person who cared about policy. Um, true, true. But, but, anyway. uh, but you're right. Some of those Tea Party folks who came in on that um, on that bandwagon have transitioned to becoming populists. Right. Um, and so the, the that for them was a vehicle, whereas I think maybe Ryan was perhaps a true believer. Um, right. I, I just want to yeah. go back and say, I, I don't want to necessarily say that I want to underestimate the power of the pandemic on on these trends, though, because uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of the major federal programs have have a history, particularly coming from the left. I mean, you think about FDR, LBJ, those kinds of things. But, you know, the left had also moved. Right. I mean, you think about the new Democrats in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, they had also moved a fair amount away from these sort of like big government programs. I mean, they basically had declared, you know, the era of big government is over as well. Um, and so, you know, the movement back, you know, in some ways for the left, you know, the, sort of the victory of, of, of Bernie Sanders and sort of the much more, and you know, Elizabeth Warren, right? And, you know, sort of the much more serious, you know, expansive policy view, you know, that was there. But I think it was more there as a pressure thing before the pandemic. It was more there as sort of like, this is a voice on the left. Like you have the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders type folks on the left. Whereas post-pandemic, I think those folks are in the driver's seat. And I think in the same way on the right, um, you know, you have Trump who sort of like mentions, oh, yeah, it'd be nice to have an infrastructure bill. Sure, you know, it'd be nice to have some of these programs. Um, it's finally infrastructure week. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but, but now, you know, there are serious Republicans who are actually writing massive policies. I mean, you know, you, you have people out there who are saying, we're actually going to write bills. I mean, even if they're bills that don't have a chance of passing right now, um, you know, the fact that you have serious policy-minded Republicans who are talking about these expansive things. And again, I, I don't think that would have been there without the pandemic. You, we would not mm -hmm. have seen those kinds of policies and those kinds of people in the driver's seat, or at least approaching the driver's seat in either party um, without the pandemic. So I, I think the pandemic like shifted the balance of power and, or, you know, sort of, yeah, the balance of power within both parties towards that more expansive um, federal vision, I think, in a way that would, wouldn't have happened without it. I, I wonder, that's uh, a, that's a really interesting point. I wonder if like, you know, some of these senators, right, like the Mitt and Romneys or whatever, you know, who are, who are, you know, advocating for sort of revamping some of these policies. I mean, they have good policy reasons to do so. I wonder if some of this is, I wonder how much of it is motivated by, um, we see the federal government has having a really important role and how much of it is motivated by like, well, 
the Democrats are going to going to do sort of a national level policy, and we want to have some influence over that, right? Or or want to provide an alternative that we think is better, and so we're going to float these proposals and and hope maybe some of it sticks, right? Um, if the government's going to be heavily involved, which we may not prefer, then we might as well try to shape it um, into a form that we think is is better, right? Overall, so I wonder how much of it is one, how much of it is the other. I just don't know, but. Yeah, that's a good yeah, question. You make some I, good points, Mitch. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, guys, this has been fun. I, I've enjoyed this. Can I throw one more? Uh, well, I want to do two things real quick. First of all, I, I wanna I want to goad Matt into a rant. Can I do that real quick? <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, I can. I, we've been we've been circling around it. We've 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 been floating around it, and and I would I'm just gonna dive head on into. So it is this here. like you know like waving the the red cloth in front of the bowl to get yeah, them that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you A political scientist who, um, who I think highly of, the University of Chicago, Paul Post, has an extended Twitter thread. He, he often does extended Twitter threads where he tries to explain sort of a international phenomenon. And the, his, his, uh, his du jour this last week was, we shouldn't care about the national debt. Uh-oh. We shouldn't care about this. Um, America is not like your household because your household doesn't print its own money. Um, and your household doesn't set the interest rates at which you loan that money out to other and other financial entities you interact with. It's not like balancing your checkbook at the kitchen table. And furthermore, the United States has several persistent, distinct advantages in the international system that make our national debt even more impervious to problems than most countries' national debts, specifically the United States having a currency, which is a... a which is far and away the currency of last resort that other countries like to hold for currency reserves. Um, and the ability of our country to set its own fiscal policies combined with the size and diversity of our economy means that we can continue to rack up national debt. Essentially, we can continue some of these large-scale spending programs um, in the near future without really any significant repercussions. So, Matt, what's wrong with a little spree? Okay. Um that's a huge question. Um, so thank you for like, okay. So I will uh, caveat all of this. I'm not an economist. So just please everyone get that in your minds. Um, there are probably better places to go for this sort of thing. Okay. A few things. Um, so first of all, um, I mean, I, I've heard it said, and I agree with this, like, so, and I think even, even sort of fiscal conservatives, you know, or, you know, who would, are normally sort of deficit hawks, except for on the extreme, say like, hey, deficit spending during a crisis is perfectly legitimate. And that's even some libertarianish types are like, you know, there's a place for that, right? The real danger in the ballooning of the national debt doesn't have to do with, you know, is not really heavily impacted in the long run by these one-off sort of, you know, spikes to, you know, stimulate the economy. Um, the problem is the expansion of the debt that comes from sort of the long-term expansion of of the welfare state, right? Um, and our entitlement program specifically. Um, and so I'm not worried so much about the deficit spending um, from these relief bills, right? Especially the earlier ones. I mean, it, it's, you know, some of it is pretty egregious, right? Um, but to the extent that they lead to the expansion of the welfare state that we cannot pay for, which is what this, you know, the, the, the recovery act is doing like that, that does worry me because we have seen the growth of the federal deficit and it's been almost entirely driven by, um, 
by the entitlement program, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and, and that's what the real problem is. It's not it's not the deficit spending during a, a crisis to stimulate the economy and deal with the pandemic. It's it's the, these long term structural things. So there's that. So that's a thing. Item number one. Second item is it's true that, you know, because of the U.S. position in the world, we can borrow just insane amounts of money. Right. Um, so, you know, we borrowing from ourselves, right? With, 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 with sort of impunity. The, so we the risk heightens whenever whenever. So basically, it's going to be a long time before borrowing can be a long time before we reach the point in which people won't want to lend the U.S. money, yep. right? Because the U.S. is generally going to be in a good position to basically um, pay pay its debts and pay the interest on the debt. So the question is, you should get more and more concerned when the cost of paying the interest on the debt increases as a percentage of GDP um, in basically the economic output of the United States. So as our ability to pay interest becomes a larger percentage of GDP, that's when we have to start worrying. So, so it's less about, because eventually in the, in the far future, perhaps, you know, people will maybe stop borrowing from the United States. Um, and there's complex economic reasons for that. But sort of a more immediate problem is, is as we are having to, as we are increasing the national debt, that means the cost of paying interest on the national debt increases. And generally, that's going to become a larger and larger percentage of um, our total economic output. And that becomes in itself a burden on the economy um, and tends to slow down the economy um, in some complex ways. Um, and so, so all that is, and we could say a lot more, and I'm not an economist, but I guess my sort of problem with all of this is even though certain deleterious consequences could be, f you know, far into the future, right? Um, or are not easily quantifiable, even though we can borrow with impunity. Um, at some point, someone's gonna have to pay it, right? And and what this fundamentally constitutes is intergenerational theft, right? It's not entirely clear which generation is going to have to pay. Yep. Some future generation will, right? Um, and and that's something that that almost nobody is talking about. Um, is that ultimately we are robbing some future generation of maybe not we're maybe not going to create a completely destroyed United States, but we are we are sapping sort of the economic energy um, out of out of the system for a future generation. Um, and maybe that maybe the pain spread out. Maybe this doesn't come for some you know long period of time. Um, but this is. This is a serious moral hazard, and and people really aren't talking about that dimension very much. Mitch, you buy that? Is this a is is this a is this a robbing our grand or great grandchildren to pay ourselves now? Um. So again, I I, I don't want to claim too much um, economic expertise because I, I don't really have it. I think um, I think I think conventionally, folks have 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 argued that although i do think you know one of the things that's that's interesting and i do and and there's always this sort of question right is as you're stimulating the economy right as you sort of make you know put more money in people's pockets as you borrow money to try to create more in some ways sort of like e even as you borrow to sort of make things more equal 
um, in some ways, you eventually perhaps open up more opportunities to to tax people more fully down the pipe. I mean, so in some ways, it can almost be a revenue generator down the road. So in other words, if you lift people out of poverty, if you have more people who are eventually in a situation where they can contribute in the future, you know, then eventually you have an economy that actually can run more efficiently and can actually handle these increased debts, right? But it only happens because you have um, put these, you know, social policies in place um, down the pipe. So I think there's a lot of, you know, complicated equations, right? And I think it's hard to sort of, under, you know, predict exactly what this is going to look like in the future, how this is all going to play out. But I don't want to completely say that, you know, that that answers all of Matt's concerns. I don't think it does. I mean, I think there's a lot, um, you know, it's, it's, it has been clear that, you know, and, and a lot of policy folks have been worried about this, right, that some policies are creating, um, you know, an increasing, you know, especially the, especially the interest that we have to pay every year on those debts. I mean, that interest is money that uh, isn't available for other federal programs. And so, yep. you know, the more that you have that mounting up, the more that, you know, the we have to do more, more dancing, more financial, you know, wizardry and printing of money and whatever, you know, to try to make those things happen and not and not hurt us. And so, um, you know, everything kind of has a price at some at some level. And it, and so, I, I do think you know, it's not something to sort of immediate, you know, completely brush aside. I think Matt's mm-hmm. Matt's right that these are these are real um, worries that uh, that people are not particularly worried about right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'll buy that. And I, I think actually in the um, – I really like what you had to say, Mitch. Good thoughts by both of you guys today, by the way. I, but I, I think Matt's critique is really relevant. And if, if it's true that there isn't going to be some kind of future tax revenue payoff from a more developed, better educated um, uh, population – then yeah, we are stealing from a future generation. And maybe that's okay in the short term, pandemic relief, economic stimulus, those kinds of things. But longer term issues still need to be addressed. And it's hard for the American population uh, to disaggregate those two kinds of spending in their minds, right? Most Americans just think spending is spending. It all comes out of the same, out of the same checkbook. And it really, it, when we're setting national fiscal policy and macroeconomic policy, there really is very different kinds of spending. And that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, you know, some, some, you know, government programs can sort of bootstrap this in interesting ways, right. To kind of get to Mitch's point. Um, and, and to the extent that they can do that, well, fantastic. But a lot of them don't, right. I mean, LBJ's, you know, massive, um, you know, great society program. A lot of it was an abject failure and actually raising people out of poverty. It did some good things, but the cost, like just the sheer sort of fiscal cost of it was probably, um, it seemed like there was a lot that was spent for a relatively small return, right? And yep. other disadvantages, right? So, um, so you know, I, I'm in favor of of you know, uh, a welfare state that can that can ultimately lift people out of a situation and basically improve all the society so that down the down the road, you know, everyone's you know going to be better off, right? Because we're we're in a healthier system. So it's great if you can do that, but a lot of program government programs, you know, don't do that, right? Yeah, and that's what worries me. 
Well, guys, unfortunately, we have to wrap this up for the day. This has been this has been super fun. Um, it's been a lot more fun than the last year of pandemic that we've lived through. Um, <laughs> I've, been, I've enjoyed this conversation much more thoroughly. Um, we're going to be back in your feed probably in a couple of weeks here to think about other additional uh, political issues. Perhaps even by that point, we'll have a um, some some things to talk about with uh, Biden's new administrative uh, initiatives for Build Back Better. And if we don't have that, we'll have plenty of other things to talk about too. Thanks for listening to us. You can always get a hold of us at the channel, which is channel 3900. And you can email us at channel 3900 at gmail.com. Email our show directly. Tell us what questions you want us to address, especially now that we're out of the election season. We have a little bit more opportunity to de delve into deeper issues. So let us know what you'd like us to talk about. You can email us at um, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to us. And until you hear from us again, on behalf of my colleagues here at Beth University and University of South Carolina at Aiken, um, go Royals. Go Royals.